You're listening to Unscripted with Alex, a podcast that empowers young families to make choices that are best for them and their children. Welcome to Unscripted with Alex, Crystal. Thanks so much for having me. <laughs> so we've just on the previous episode, we spoke to Joe, your colleague from Core of Wellbeing, and now we're going to be speaking with Crystal and you're going to be talking to us a little bit more around mental wellbeing for our teenagers. Can you start off just by telling us a little bit about yourself and your background? Sure. So I grew up in the beautiful southwest down here um, and went to local schools. I think I grew a real passion in, I guess, getting the best out of people when I was managing teams in retail, um, where I worked with lots of young women and bringing the best out of them. And so I studied positive psychology around eight years ago, and that was alongside Joe. And I've recently just completed um, my degree in psychology as well. So that was nice to get the piece of paper the other weekend when I graduated. Oh, congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. That's awesome. And Joe and I... Um, Yeah, working in mental health over the last 10 years, Joe and I saw an opportunity over COVID to start um, Core of Wellbeing, and that is really working in a prevention model um, of mental illness, and it's been, yeah, a great journey so far. Yeah, our prevention is such, because it's, when you're looking at the spectrum, and obviously you will be able to explain this better than me, but the spectrum of going from being in a mentally well state to a mentally unwell state, it's quite a spectrum, isn't it? And so if you can catch it in those earliest stages, Mm. surely we can do a lot more things, right? Absolutely. And equipping people with the strategies, language and tools to be able to manage those difficult times that arise and know where to go, how they can get support and how, you know, the people around and community can support as well. So Mm. that's particular interest for us and what we spend a lot of time in. Yeah. And I would say I see a lot more medication for teens now um, for antidepressants and anxiety medications and it does seem like the rates are increasing. This is a big question for you, but why, like, do you think that is and why do you think that is? I think um, definitely. I think there's a lot of different factors that are playing into now. I think one of those things has been COVID and the challenges that young people have faced in, I guess, that fear and uncertainty, the anxiety and, you know, their brains aren't fully developed as teenagers. They don't develop till they're around 25. So being able to process what's going on in the world and then what that means for them. So I guess young people, maybe back when I was going through high school, it was like, oh, you know, you go get a gap year job and you're working to travel or you're going to uni. A lot of that really changed for our teenagers. And I guess that uncertainty of, okay, what should I look forward to? What am I working towards? And the pressures of the cost of living, I think, you know, where Mm -hmm. usually you're going to live independently or you're working towards that, that's not really seen as a possibility for them. So they really had to reassess um, what that looks like. And that's still a process now and is still ongoing. So I think um, that definitely attributes to depression and anxiety and the rises that we're seeing. And then I guess the social media and screen time has had a big influence. So there's no real right answer. It's all connected. And yeah, there's still going to see a lot of repercussions from the last few years, unfortunately. Gosh, I hadn't even thought of that because 
yeah, you have that gap here. And for a lot of them, it might have been that they thought, you know, would go traveling or, you know, if they wanted to go live on their own or they're moving to Perth and they want to find a rental, like, wow, rentals are so hard to get mm, right now. And absolutely. if you get one, they're so expensive. So, yeah, how are these kids or like teens and things meant to move, you know, that transition from high school to uni? That would be mm. a very stressful time. And I think it's putting um, maybe more pressures on families as well yeah. of what that looks like. But you think about maybe the lower socioeconomic families as well and then um, having to stay in environments that are unsafe for these young people. Mm. Yes, it's quite a big impact. There's still um, lots of hope for young people as well. It's just reassessing how things look in this time and this economic times Mm. and how we can support them more. And I think one thing that I, I feel as a community, we just need to spend more time with young people in listening to these things that are going on for them. Yeah, mm. okay, and just connecting with them. Yeah. Do you find yourself constantly reaching for sugary foods? It's no secret that eating too much sugar can wreak havoc on your gut health. Not only does it feed bad gut bacteria, but it can also cause inflammation and damage to the gut lining. Fatika Co's Gut Health Protocol is here to help. Our simple four-week reset program is designed to remove triggers and unwanted microbes, supporting you through your sugar hangover and repairing the gut. So why wait? Start feeling better today with Fatika Co's Gut Health Protocol. What are some things that are being done at the moment to help with the teens? Is it sort of like government programs or more like services and things that you guys are working with people? Yeah, there's definitely a range of um, different programs that are coming out and I think they're still kind of emerging. Um, I think within the schools they're becoming more aware of things so they're implementing wellbeing coordinators or Mm. are more open to having programs within the school. I think what can become a bit of a problem is the funding around who's funding these Mm. programs and if it's the parents, you know, paying for them. But I think, yeah, like what we're starting to offer is those um, programs and trying to get funding in so it's economical for families so that we can reach all families and all teens to get support. Yeah, that's right. Otherwise it just ends up benefiting the um, people with money and those young, the ones that don't have the money could, yeah, are often the ones that need more help potentially. Absolutely. And I think it's also around supporting the parents. Mm. So the parents having the language of how they can then support these young people as well. Yeah, because if you never learnt the language or you never grew up in a good household or um, with that sort of support for mental wellbeing as a child or throughout your life, how do you learn it as a parent? Mm, exactly. Mm. And I think that's where we're putting a big focus is, you know, we can provide all these skills for these young people, but if they don't have, you know, their mentors and parents able to understand stand it themselves, um, then, you know, it's not practised in the mm. home. So it's really important that it's the whole wraparound, that it's the young people, it's the parents and it's the schools all working together. Mm. So let's start at the obvious one, the social media. Yes. <laughs> Obviously, social media is impacting teens and, well, everybody. How much are we seeing social media sort of change the way that our teens are seeing the world and moving through the world? Um, hugely. And I think, you know, there's still lots of research emerging. I'm not sure if you've seen the show Mirror Mirror 
Uh, oh, so I've heard of it, but no, I haven't. No, explain. <laughs> I think um, Todd Sampson is, he was in broadcasting and then what he realised oh. and advertising, so he really wanted to understand what his industry had, how it impacts um, young people and image and I guess the social media and all of those things. But recently, a study in 2018 of ages of 13 to 17-year-olds found that 45% of young people are constantly online and that's quite huge. And then 97% of these young people that were using um, these social media platforms like Snapchat and Instagram were more likely to have poorer mental health and wellbeing outcomes. So, I mean, it's playing a huge role in, yeah, how they see themselves, that disconnect as well. So they're not really having real connection relationships. So yeah, it's interesting. It's playing out in lots of different ways. Mm. Mm. I was really surprised to hear with Joe on the previous episode, your colleague say that some kids are on there for like seven hours a day. And this is primary school age children. Yeah. I'm like, how do you get seven hours on technology, on social media or on screens? Like that's it's so much time. It is so much time. But you can see how, like, even when you're walking down the street and there's young people who are walking their dogs and they're on their screens while they're walking their dogs. And so it's pretty easy, you know, if that's a half an hour there and then they're getting home and they're on their phone too, you can imagine how much time is being spent. Mm. And so in what ways are we seeing this technology and social media use actually impacting our teens? In like what specific ways? So I guess it's that withdrawn, that lack of connectedness. They're not spending time out with their friends as much. It might be more in the space of their homes. I think also that there might be some linking to body image and not feeling that good enough or comparison and that unrealistic comparison to, you know, that person's making money off this so I can go and do that as well, which is an Mm. unrealistic, oh, they're making millions, that's an unrealistic expectation. And so it's kind of setting those, yeah, unrealistic expectations of who I'm meant to be, where I'm meant to be going, what I'm meant to be doing, and it's it's not real. Mm. Yeah, and I suppose I can see how, you know, that would impact females, particularly around how they see themselves in a positive image way in their weight and stuff. Are you seeing higher rates of bulimia and anorexia or anything and links with social media? I think there's more focus on body image and looks and that comparison. I don't work specifically with clients with eating disorders, but, um, yeah, there's definitely in the research there is um, higher rates of that as well. But it is just that comparison and... Yeah, comparing to, (laughs) you know, the unrealistic influences and things like that. And I think that's something to point out is we're only seeing the best of people when they're posting. And even, you know, young people who are following these influences, they're only sharing parts of their life. And these young people are just connecting to those parts. They're not seeing some of the other, some of the other things that are going on as Mm -hmm. well. And you were said um, a second ago that when they're on social media, they're not spending as much time with friends and things. I would imagine they would be thinking that they are because they're talking with all of their friends, mm. but that's in a virtual world. It's not the same as being yeah. face-to-face and interacting with their 
peers, correct? Yeah, that's true. And the other side of that is um, a, a researcher, a neuroscientist that we listened to a little while ago and he kind of said, you know, to parents, rumour parents, you know, would you allow your young person to have, you know, a person over on a school night? Would you allow them to have five people over on a school night in their bedroom? Would you allow them to have 10 people, 20 people? And all these parents are putting their hands down. And that's essentially what we're allowing them to do. So there's the other side of that they're overwhelmed with all this virtual connection, that that can then cause that anxiety. Or there's, you know, difficulties with friendships and navigating bullying and different things that are coming up for them as well but then not being able to have the skills of having those conversations face-to-face with people too. Mm -hmm. Mm. And that bullying world, oh, my gosh. I mean, beforehand you would, and it wouldn't have been very nice, but, you know, before social media there would be bullying at school and then you go home Mm. and they can't touch you. (laughs) Yeah. Well, now you're still getting bullied at home because they've got the connection to you through social media. And obviously it's a different way of talking on social media as well. I think people think that they can, they would say things that they wouldn't normally say face to face Mm. through a screen. Absolutely. Yeah. It's very interesting. And like you said, you know, back in the day, you could kind of go, okay, now I'm home. I'm in my safe place, if that's a safe place. And then maybe our parents could help us with what's going on. Whereas now it's just constant. So it's really important to set those boundaries. And as a parent, check in with your young people what platforms are they on? Are, you know, have they changed in how they're feeling, you know, and is there something going on underneath or in the bedroom, even on the phone? Mm. Mm. So as we know, it's kind of unavoidable to have technology. Uh, I mean, obviously the kids have iPads and screens from, I don't know, are they studying in primary school now giving screens I think primary school, school yeah. That's yeah. nuts. I can't what believe it either. I think they're starting well. to go back. Yeah. Um, the schools are starting to recognise, but I don't know why it was introduced in the first place, but that's okay. <laughs> I, used, I know, it's crazy. I mean, I used a pen and paper all through uni as well. I didn't even take my laptop to school. I could have, but I didn't because... Mm. Uh, I mean, everyone's got their different way of learning, but you do not need a computer in primary school. And I wouldn't have even think you need it at a teenage year either, unless you're writing an assignment and you're, you know, you're doing your study. Mm. Yeah. Um, But I don't understand that world very well. So I'm sure (laughs) the teens and teachers would have another opinion around that. But it is pretty unavoidable. So what can parents do to teach their children around how to live in a world with so much technology? What are some practical Mm. tips and tools that we can use? I'll share two weekends ago, I was in Melbourne and I went out to like a family friend's property out um, in the countryside of Melbourne. I hadn't actually met them before, so it was my first time. And I met these beautiful young two women. They were 17 and 19 and we were there for the afternoon, had dinner and were just chatting and interacting. Um, These young people were so engaged. Not once did they go off to check their phone in the space of, you know, five hours and they were just having these conversations with us. And I walked away and said to my partner, I was like, oh, my God, those young people were just so engaged and amazing. And it was interesting to reflect on that and think that is actually unusual. (laughs) It is. And And it should have been. But, yeah, yeah, you're right. And I was really, like, blown away and I thought, no, that's actually norm. That should be the norm. Yeah. That's how you want young people to show up. So 
it's definitely unavoidable, you know, that young people are going to have to navigate, navigate the technology and social media. Prevention and delaying as long as possible is probably the main thing. So if you've got little people Mm. really preventing, I've got a 13-year-old or 12-year-old sister and she's having those conversations around, I want a phone, I want a phone, all her friends have a phone and it's like, no, we know the harm that, you know, we're going to delay that for as long as possible. There's no real need for Mm. them to have that. They're already exposed to so much at school. So that's the number one thing. Delay, <laughs> delay, delay. Delay, yes. delay, delay. Um, setting up um, boundaries in the home. So, you know, when we're getting home from school, we're doing, a, you know, chores or jobs or playing out on the street with the other children. And then there might be like a half an hour window of, okay, this is when we can use our phones. Mm. And being really firm with that boundary as well. And you find if the children have that routine, they're more likely to follow it and go along with it. Um, It's also coming back to your family values. So we really value that connected time together or we really value, you know, health and wellness and we know that this isn't good for our health and well-being. So this is actually the meaning behind why we're setting these boundaries and that's important for little people to understand and young people to understand because they're like, well, why are you taking my phone away from me? But Mm. it's actually, well, why we're doing it is because we really value this and we value our time together. Role modelling. (laughs) (laughs) that is probably the biggest thing we can't really sit there on our phone and say you need to put your phone away when we're role modeling (laughs) that behavior so Mm. I think you know parents can start to be an adults in community be mindful of your phone use and reflect on your own phone use and then from there you can be transparent with your young people because we're not perfect and you could say that to a young person you know i want to try these new this new way of being because i know that being on our phones isn't healthy for us and i know that i have been on my phone a lot so let's work on this together so i think mm-hmm. having that transparent conversation is important as well that's a really good idea just being quite open with them that it's going to be a a process and a challenge for both people, yeah. uh, for parents sorry, and children. Uh, it's really interesting around, you know, with the parents having to be, we needing to be so mindful ourselves and what we're doing with our phones. We have this narrative that, oh, but if I don't have my phone, this person's not going to be able to reach me or somebody, whoever is in the ether, is not yeah. going to be able to find me. And it's, well, do we really need to be found? And is that, that's adding to our constant stresses mm. to go, well, we need to be reached at all hours of the evening during family time and dinner time and wind down time. Well, work and everything else should just switch off and Mm. not be there all the time. I'm sure that adds to our stresses. Absolutely. And sleep as well impacts our sleep. Mm. We've got emails coming through the night and the screens are lighting up. And I think when I was um, managing teams as well, it was kind of when I was leaving my leaders, you know, and it wasn't in regards to phone use, but even just allowing them to have that space and problem solve themselves. So Mm. having that space of, okay, do I really need to answer this right now? Mm. Is this going to impact my values and spending time with my family? Can I just put that aside for now? And I think 
yeah, reflecting on that too. How important really is this? Mm. Mm. I'm thinking we're oh going to have to invest in one of those little um, lock boxes with a timer. Yes. You can time them and you pop everyone's phones going in and set that away and, yeah, can't have it for that period Absolutely. of time. Absolutely. And that's the thing, parents holding compassion for themselves. They've been put in this social experiment mm. as well. We were all kind of addicted to these devices, if we're really honest. Mm. And so holding compassion that we're not always going to get it perfect to begin with. But if we're just starting slowly in bringing in these boundaries and creating healthy habits, then that's the start. Mm. Mm. It's really tricky because so many of the apps and things like that have weaved their way into our sort of our work as well. So Mm. for instance, a teen, I would imagine might say, so they want to have their laptop open. I need to do my study. I need to write this assignment. So they're going to get that out. They're going to have the internet open because they need to get their research and they want to write all that stuff out. But then you've got, you can still have Instagram on there and Facebook and still having notifications and things popping up. Mm-hmm. It's found a way to weave its way in there regardless. What can we do to kind of ensure that they are not being distracted by these other apps when they're trying to do their studies? I guess one part of that is turning off the notifications, but maybe separating the laptop from the phone. So having the phone in another room Mm -hmm. while they're studying or while they're doing their work, I think that's a pretty important start. And then muting, trying to mute those notifications Mm -hmm. as well. They're really cleverly designed by psychologists and Mm. (laughs) all these people that know how the reward and dopamine systems work. So even just knowing that, that it's designed for this. But, yeah, I think just trying to limit as much as possible. Yeah. We sort of briefly touched on the previous episode as well around social media and its potential link with an increase in addictive behaviour. What have you seen or noticed around this? Are we seeing potentially more addiction issues caused by social media? I think, yeah, so there's that dopamine reward system of getting the likes and then um, or doing that TikTok challenge, whatever that is, then you're getting that hit Mm. from those things. I think also, you know, when we're thinking about addiction, there is those other elements of risky behaviours. So then, you know, we might be more susceptible to other things like vaping, which is becoming a huge issue and a huge issue in the Southwest here. Mm. And that can be the link of the addictive behaviour of the dopamine reward system, but also, um, yeah, that social media influence as well. And I think also in terms of vaping, it's also marketed to these young people. You know, there's those lolly flavours that they have. They're easily accessible that they can buy them, I think, at the moment. Or there's, it's not very regulated. Um, wow. So that's a really interesting part too. But, yeah. So <laughs> can you a- explain a little bit more to us about this vaping situation? So you're saying in the southwest particularly we're seeing higher amounts of vaping happening mm-hmm in our teens. And is this happening at school or? Yes, we have had schools um, reporting that they've been vaping in schools and also primary schools. So I'm not sure if this is a little bit of a modelling of, you know, the older teens who might have more access and then they might be older siblings to the younger people. But I think it's, you know, the lack of awareness of the health impacts. I think there's still that perception of, you know, it's not as bad as smoking or doesn't smell as bad. And so 
the scent of those things go away quicker so the teachers can't really identify straight away what what is happening but they have reported that yeah they are getting yeah seeing more vapes in the schools and do all the vapes have nicotine in them i think some do I'm unsure. I think some might just have the, but I mean, it's all chemicals, yeah. basically. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. They're literally just breathing in chemicals. Yeah. And like you said, flavoured as lolly flavours. Yeah. yeah. Wow, that's such a terrible thing that this vaping industry has been able to creep its way into your teens. And obviously that makes sense. I mean, teens have always wanted to experiment and try things. And, you know, you used to have them trying to smoke at school in the, mm. in the toilets and things like that. And now vaping. Wow. Mm. And I think coming back to the um, TikTok viral challenges Mm. as well, some of the schools are noticing um, that it's becoming a big issue where they're desensitised to, you know, the implications of what might happen, whether that be a violent thing or it might be harmful to their body as well. They're not actually realising because everyone, or that's all they're seeing on social media. So if they're doing it, then I must be okay in doing it, but they can be very harmful and it's quite hard for the schools to monitor as well. Yeah. It sounds like it. It sounds like Mm. it's easy for them to get their hands on and and hide it. And yeah, social media, I mean, they can market directly to those children and there's really nothing you can do about that. You can't really stop it, can you? Because Mm. they've got all sorts of tricky marketing ways, just put it straight in front of their face. That's it. And that's when, you know, education for parents is vital on what are the health implications um, and also how can we have that those transparent conversations with our young people so that they understand the impacts of what this might be. Mm. Oh, it sounds very scary, I think, for parents now. So before we move on to because we're going to talk around um, exam stresses and things like that, but what are some things then that parents can really do to pre- prevent these addiction behaviours and the social media? Again, is it just putting the phones away and just talking to them, like you said? I think having those open, transparent conversations are vital, building that that trust with your young people. So really checking in with, you know, as a parent, are you noticing that they've got different behaviours? Do they have changes in their moods? Um, Are they more irritable? And really creating that space for them to come to you or going to them and listening to them and asking questions is this something that I can listen to you or is this something that I can help you with Mm. Um, in managing what those things are coming up for? Um, Again, it's the education so parents understand the language to use with the young people and the impacts of these things. It does sound very scary but it's also very hopeful that we we know these things now Mm. and that we can actually be a part of the change. Okay. I Mm. like that. So just being aware of their behaviour, trying to make yourself available for them to come Mm. and speak to you. Because I suppose often there are times where they just want to like shut you out and they're just trying to think that they can deal with it on their own and they're trying to deal with it on their own. Mm. There's nothing wrong with that, but they do need to be able to feel like they can. Absolutely. And it goes back to their brain development. You know, they don't have a prefrontal cortex fully developed at, Mm. you know, these young ages. They need help with problem solving and rational thinking. And we need to be there to support them with that. And, you know, keep trying, keep trying to build that connection with your young person and create that trustful space for them because it's only going to, they will eventually be able to come to you when things aren't going well. 
Mm. Okay, so we've touched a lot on social media and how that can be impacting um, their mental well-being in terms of anxiety, bullying, addictive behaviour, even uh, body image issues. Let's move into now something that's quite happening at the moment is exams. It's nearly exam time um, and they're already sort of going through mock exams and, and things like that. It can be a very stressful time because it's mm-hmm. sort of, especially in your year 12 exams, you're thinking, I've got to get all this right because this is my only way into uni. This is my life ahead of me. Mm. Um, so it feels like it's so much pressure build up. Mm. What are some things that our teens can do, some self-care tips to help them and their mental well-being during stressful times like exams? So I think it's important to schedule regular breaks mm. and keeping them as movement breaks as well. So getting up and actually stretching, walking around, and sometimes they might need a timer to do that because I know some young people just keep going, keep going, and it's like, no, that actually helps with the hippocampus and the learning and memory parts of our brain. So we need to take those breaks. Grounding techniques, so such as mindfulness or breathing techniques are really important So that can just be simple box breathing and just taking five minutes, you know, out of their time just to come back to their senses. Okay, where am I? How do I feel? What am I seeing? What can I hear? Is it the birds chirping outside? So those grounding techniques. You said box breathing? And box breathing, sorry. (laughs) So simple box, there's lots of different breathing techniques, but box breathing could be, you know, breathing in for four, holding for four, breathing out for four and then breathing in for four. So it's just that nice, easy and bringing back to self, practising positive self-talk and mindset. So the growth mindset, I can do this, I will get through this. I've actually done this before. And so, Mm -hmm. and yeah, enforcing that and having parents enforce that as well. Okay. That sounds good. So, yeah, setting a timer, that is a good one because when you're really bogged down in something, it can be really hard to pull yourself away and you think, I'll just do another 10 minutes. Mm. But you're saying by actually taking those breaks, are you saying roughly every hour or? Whatever works for that person. I know when I was studying, I needed to take them more regularly. Okay. So even every 20 minutes. So it's what what works for that young person. And Mm. you're saying by doing those regular breaks, they'll actually be able to retain more information Mm -hmm. and have a better memory recall. Yes, absolutely. As well as healthy snacks as well. Yes, yes. (laughs) Which we have just spoken to a nutritionist about this. I'm like, all right, what are the healthy snacks? Because yes, it's very easy just to reach for those sugars and Mm. that will add to your cortisol levels too, doesn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So what are some ways that parents can help support their children during these times? So I think parents, you know, checking in with their young people, creating that space like we talked about, parents checking in with their own well-being as well. So if they're busy and rushed and not actually creating that space for the young person who's already, you know, Mm. at the tip of the mountain, then they might need to think, okay, how can I ground myself as a parent so I can be there for my young person? I guess supporting them with that positive self-talk, you've done this before, I know you'll get through it. Um, And then supporting on those um, self-care and wellbeing tips I spoke about before, getting out with them, going for a walk with them in nature as well. Yeah, it can be very helpful kind of when you Mm. just have that steady person, like Mm. your your parent or caregiver or that person that's 
grounded is probably the best way to describe it. If you just go out and have a walk and you can talk about something else or, you know, whatever it is, it can really bring you back to centre. And then it's very interesting in times of movement, Mm. the amazing things that come to you. So like if you had a problem that you were really struggling with, like I used to find even like trying to work out a maths equation or something and I couldn't get it, couldn't get it. If I went for a run or a walk, I'd be like, it's come to me. Yeah. I've worked it out. Like I now I know. Like movement can be so good for that sort of problem solving thing, can't it? That's it. And we can become really stuck and you just concentrate on that one thing that you can't get. And the more that you concentrate on it, the more you can't get it. <laughs> yes. So being able to create space and step out and yes. then come back is really important. Yeah. Mm. Oh, well, there's some really fantastic um, tips then that parents and, and the children can try um, during these stressful times. You sort of briefly touched on it before, but what are some things that parents can really look out for with their children? Because we want to be able to identify when they are having trouble. I mean, the last thing we want is that them to do something terrible and you had no idea that they were even going, having a tough time or having any problems. Mm. What are some things, and that sounds like they might be really subtle things at times that Mm. we can watch out for that our child might be having Mm. mental health issues? So they can become more withdrawn, maybe um, they're isolating themselves more. Um, The changes in mood, whether that be highs, lows, um, more irritability, aggression, um, sadness as well. They're not doing the things that they usually would do. So maybe they might be engaged in sports or different you know, other groups that they might do and they don't want to do those things so, so so much more. Sorry. So just looking out for those subtle things. Maybe they're not as connected to you. Maybe they come home from school and usually they'll have a little bit of a chat, but they're not doing that so much. So yeah, just checking in. And I think parents can sometimes think, oh, you know, that's a usual teen Mm, response. That's what I was wondering. It'd be quite hard to be, oh, they're just going through their teenage years. Yeah. So creating that space that you're actually allowing those conversations to happen. Hey, I'm noticing, you know, that you're not hanging out with your friends as much? Is there something that I can help you with? Or is there something that you want to talk to me about? So just creating that space with those um, conversations. And even when young people are getting home from school or, you know, just um, on the weekends, asking more than how was your day? What was Mm. it that's gone well? Or is there something that's been tricky? Um, What would you like to be different? So yeah, opening up those conversations with more than just the I guess, close-ended Yeah, <laughs> I was going to say, that's a really good um, sort of suggestion to have more um, actual questions that you really want to know and answer. Like you want to mm. go a bit deeper than just the, yeah, how was your day? Yeah. And then the answer is, yeah, it was good. <laughs> oh, no, it was fine. Yeah. yeah. And then from there you can kind of check in with their responses and body language mm. as well. Okay. Mm. And how would a parent respond as well? Because say your child comes to you with a big problem, or something saying, look, I'm actually feeling really depressed or I'm actually feeling really anxious. Say they they said those words and I'm, mm-hmm. oh, I'm sure that they probably, maybe they don't have the language to say that. What is a good way to respond? Because I know we want to do the fix it or we feel like mm-hmm. we should have the answer. We might not have the answer as a parent. Mm-hmm. So I think a good way to first respond is, is this something that you want me to listen to or is this something you would like us to do something about? Ah, okay, yes. And because sometimes it might just be that validation in that moment, something really tricky has come up at school 
And rather than going to, oh, I'm going to the teacher, I'm going to that parent, which sometimes those young people don't want that. Mm -hmm. So it's really maybe they just want to listen and feel heard in that moment. Whereas if it's something that they want to be different, then that's something you can come up with a plan with, with them and do it together. Okay. Yeah. I really like that. Yeah, mm. okay. And that goes with anything. I know like Absolutely. when we with our <laughs> partners and stuff, we come home, we want to tell them all the problems and then sometimes they might want to like or feel like they have to have the answer. Like, no, 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 I just want you to just listen. Yeah. Just, just tell me I'm right. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. it. That validation is so important. Yeah. Mm. And what sort of work do you do specifically um, with teens in this sort of age group with Core of Wellbeing? So I work one-on-one with teens and I work more of a inner positive psychology practices. So I look at, you know, the buffers of what's going well. Um, when are they at their best selves? What are they doing? And I use a strengths-based approach as well. So we look into, you know, what are their strengths? What are their superpowers? And that helps them with overcoming their challenges as well. We run a lot of um, workshop groups. So we're actually developing one at the moment called Empowered Teens, which will hopefully be able to deliver this term. We're just um, refining some details. So you can look out for that on our socials. And then I work in the NDIS space as well. So I provide psychosocial recovery coaching, but also doing parenting support workshops. So a huge range. Yeah, (laughs) Uh, that sounds so good. So we'll have to keep your eyes out, people, for those programs coming up. And I imagine when you said there, you're talking about um, touching on the strengths. So part of your work is looking at the strengths of the children. And imagine this would be particularly helpful for people who might have learning challenges like ADHD or um, even types of autism potentially. Mm -hmm. Um, I know that they often have real fabulous areas of strength and we can kind of sometimes be drawn to try and work on on areas that we want to fix or areas of weakness instead of really diving into those areas of strength. Mm-hmm. And this is an issue, I guess, across all ages and adults mm. as well. And it's something, I guess, you know, culturally, that's something we always did was, you know, we've got to work on our weaknesses. But what we find is if we're sitting in our weaknesses, they're things that we're not energised by and, you know, they don't bring us joy and we're not good at them. So why are we spending our time in that space? It's so important to look at what strengths we have and how we can develop those more and identify with those more so that we can be our best and show up in the world, which I really love that work because it's really hopeful and it really helps build their self-confidence and self-esteem. I usually have young people that come and sit with me and they say, oh, when they first come in, I don't have any strengths. (laughs) And then I go, oh, let's like, you know, discover that a little bit more and get curious with that. And then by the end of the session, they're like, I'm this and and you see how they light up and what that actually looks like. So that's that's, I guess that really exciting work for me and how we can bring that out. Yes. And again, that would be the story that they've been told their whole life potentially by hopefully not caregivers, but it can be at times, yeah. I'm sure. And then the narrative that that builds into being their own narrative as well. Absolutely. That they don't have any strengths. Or that so. they're not good at things. Oh. But it's usually the language. They just haven't had the language. They don't know what the words are mm. um, and they don't know what they mean. So it's being able to give them that vocabulary of strengths. Mm. Mm. 
And okay, so if anyone wants to get in touch with you, where can they find you? They can find us on our website, Core of Wellbeing, and that's the same for our Instagram and Facebook. Core of Wellbeing is our handle. Otherwise, you can email us uh, info at coreofwellbeing.com.au. Nice and simple. You guys have kept it very (laughs) straightforward across the board, so easily to be found. Um, Thank you so much for your time today, Crystal. Thank you. I'm so grateful to have this opportunity. Thank you for listening to Unscripted with Alex. This show was brought to you by Batika Co. 